Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Those are the verses we're going to be focused on this morning, Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6, really in preparation for taking the Lord's Supper. I uh, hope that all of you know that on the last Sunday of the month, we always celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, on Sunday morning together as a church. And that information is important as well because I know that we can all get caught up in the regular routine of life or the routine of a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. And that can make it hard for us to prepare our hearts for this important means of God's grace to us to encourage us in our faith. So let me give you a pastoral encouragement moving forward that on every Saturday night, you would remember that Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision to prepare our hearts for worship, to sing, to hear the word of God, to be together, and on the last Sunday of the month to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we look forward to doing shortly from now. Now, I'm always amazed at how the text on the Sunday morning in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper actually prepares our hearts to take it. And that's what we want. We want the Word of God to remind us of the incredible promises and privileges that we have in Christ, all that He has done for us, the way that He has bestowed on us amazing grace, how merciful He has been to us as fallen people in a fallen world who were once betrayers of His, living in treason against Him, and yet He came to us in grace. That is what the Lord's Supper is all about. And you know, I don't know that I should be very surprised that on these Sunday mornings we, we come to texts in the course of preaching series that always seem to help us because actually that's what we should expect. On any Sunday that we preach carefully from the Word of God would be a Sunday that would prepare us for such a thing because that's what every page of the Word of God is about. And so we certainly pray that God will use this text this morning to give us real joy and to enlighten us again as to exactly what he has done for us and how grateful we should be to be in Christ. This morning that will happen as we look at this text and see the error of the world and on its backdrop, ultimately the glory of Christ. We've been seeing this a lot in the book of Revelation as we look forward to it, through this vision of things to come to see what God has planned for this fallen world when he brings final judgment and wrath. And all throughout those pages of scripture, we have tried to glean from them not only an understanding of what is to come and a preparation for our own hearts for whatever the Lord may ordain us to endure, but that it would fill us with joy and hope knowing that we belong to him knowing that he walks with us through all of those things and the intensified future judgments of the world, but also that that means he walks with us today through all of these comparatively smaller trials and temptations and troubles that we face. We want the word of God to encourage us, and I believe that will happen again this morning. I want to read the first few verses of this text in Revelation 17. We're going to, to, uh, to reserve the end of the text for next Sunday and, and look a little uh, at that then, but just to focus this morning on 17, 1 through 6. And as a kind of introduction, let's set the context by looking at just the first two verses. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls or vials of judgments, plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I will show you the judgment 
of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality, and those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, for us to understand the text that we're looking at this morning, it's helpful for us to remember that the unbelieving world is captured here under this name of Babylon the Great. The great ancient city called Babylon is, of course, one meaning of that term. But here in these verses, what's happening is the, the great city of Babylon is being used as a kind of symbol for ultimate unbelief, for the unbelieving system of the world that is turned against the God of the universe under the curse of sin from the, from the very beginning of the fall and has continued to operate in this independent, autonomous way, disconnected from the true God, certainly not trusting in him or belonging to him in faith and by his love and grace, but has gone its own way. So when we read about Babylon in these verses, let's keep that in mind, that this is a way of talking about in this vision the entire unbelieving world. And what that will do for us, it will help us have a backdrop to then see exactly what has God's grace delivered us from. He's called us out of that unbelieving world as former unbelievers who were who were enveloped in unbelief. Everything about us was in unbelief. Yes, there may have been certain things that we did that looked sort of Christian. There were for me. In fact, before I was a Christian, I was the vice president of FCA in my high school. How is that possible? I was doing things that looked Christian, but I was not a Christian. I didn't belong to Christ. My heart was dead in sin. I had not been awakened by his amazing grace. And so as we look at these verses today, again, we have another opportunity as God's people to see his grace on the backdrop of the unbelieving world, Babylon, from which we have been taken. And we have been taken to him and brought into his kingdom. So this picture of Babylon then also is personified or placed in an image of a person, sort of, as a seductive woman who allures. Well, we're going to look at three truths as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper to better understand exactly what he's done for us because we don't belong to this unbelieving world. We belong to a new world, another world. We belong to a world to come, and that is the world of Jesus Christ, the living Savior. I want us to see first as we look at verses 3 and 4 that Babylon, this ultimate unbelief in the world, is adorned in false splendor. The ultimate unbelief that we're thinking about here is alluring. It is masquerading as an angel of light, just like the devil. Listen to what it says in verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, holding in her hand a gold cup. Just like the devil or the dragon that we've seen previously in the book of Revelation, unbelieving thought and life in the world, this system of the world under the fall that is independent from God and autonomous, living on its own, seeking to control its own world and its own life, going its own way, just like the devil masquerades as an angel of light and deceives. 
That's one of the things that the Bible is clear is so dangerous about the unbelieving world is its, its utter ability to allure and to deceive. Listen to the way that Babylon is personified as this woman who rides on a scarlet beast. Scarlet is a, a reference that very easily can be understood to, to signify luxury with seven heads and seven horns. If you look back in Revelation, when we've heard about those horns and heads before, we read about the beast that was coming up out of the sea and the dragon. And they had these characteristics, and therefore she brings those two together. She personified as ultimate unbelief in the world, has been taking her cues from the dragon and his beasts. It goes on and says that she's clothed in purple, at this time, anyone who read this text would know what a serious thing it is to be clothed in purple. That actually purple dye before modern inventions came from snails. This delicate, difficult, time-staking time, uh, um, process. That's not the right way to put it, but this difficult process of extracting that purple dye from those snails in order to dye any kind of fabric is a sign of ultimate luxury, of opulence, of great expense. So here she is clothed in purple, adorned in gold, precious stones and pearls, holding a golden cup. You hear the allure. You hear the way the vision talks about the unbelieving world and what is so attractive. It's no wonder why the world, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ that transforms hearts, runs after the world. The world appears beautiful. Making all of these promises of luxury and ease and comfort and expense and jewels and crowns and, and ultimately glory. But the reality is that that cup is not full of goodness. Notice what it says in verse 4. She's holding in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. The reference there to sexual immorality, as we'll continue to see in this text and others, is not referring to a, a literal sexu sexual immorality. Remember, it's, it's an image, but it's an image that represents the ultimate adultery of the human heart, of the unbelieving world to God, not being married to the God of the universe, not, not serving him and belonging to him and knowing his love, but being turned away chasing after other gods and belonging to them. She's holding in her hand a golden cup, but it is full of death. This picture is repeated over and over again throughout the scriptures, and it is this stark reminder to us of the need to be discerning, to be careful, to be aware of the allures, because even though the world may appear greener on the other side. It is actually the place of death. It reminds us of Walter Samples, who was killed by a milk bottle. In 1941, the Daily News ran a story about Walter Samples, who is a, a, a war veteran, who was an upstanding member of the community, as everyone could, could tell. And he would be the kind of person that you would assume had no enemies, but in fact, he did. He had behind uh, closed doors a practiced all kinds of evil, and he had earned enemies as a result. And one of those enemies decided to do him in, and they did him in 
in an alluring way, in a deceptive way, they poisoned two bottles of nice ice-cold milk. Of course, that says a lot about this time compared to ours, and that milk was taken and set on the front porch, a normal thing at that time. Well, Walter thought that he had won some kind of prize or promotion, and he was excited to find this free milk on his front porch. It looked wonderful, white, pure, cold. Uh, Perspiration is dripping off of the glass bottles, and he takes it inside and puts it in his fridge, and just a little while later, he downs one and a half of them, not knowing that they had been poisoned by his enemies, and he dies. You see, that's a kind of picture of what the world is like, presenting on its face this this allure, this beauty, this, this image of health and enjoyment and happiness and relief, making all of these promises, but ultimately resulting in death. The reason that the unbelieving world that Babylon is this way and, and why it is so effective is because it's not any old kind of deception, but it's the ultimate deception. It's a deception that masquerades as God himself, presenting to us a kind of God replacement, a replacement of the true God with promises of something better and ultimately something better in ourselves. That name, Babylon, like the ancient city, was drawn from the account of the Tower of Babel. You remember this story in the Old Testament in which the people all gathered together and they decided to build a tower up into the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. Their entire purpose was to try to make a name for themselves and to be great in the world. This is the ultimate promise of the unbelieving world. If you fall in with us, you can be great too. You can ascend to the heavens. You can be the object of glory. You can have all of the attention. But we know how that turned out that God's judgment scattered them and confused their languages because he was not going to have that. But what's the real issue? The real issue inside this account of the Tower of Babel, this kind of unbelief is that it leads us to rise up and try to be God. It tries to put us in the place of God, which is when you really think about it with, with honest, informed hearts and minds, is an absurdity. What happens in this deception is it blurs the line between the creator and his creatures. This often is called the creator-creature distinction. That there is a stark contrast between the two. That in some ways, being made in his image, we are very much like him. He has created us to be like him. But because of the fall and because of the kind of beings that we are, even beyond the fall... We are infinitely unlike him. He is so much higher, so much better than us. And yet think about the effectiveness of the allure of the world that could actually, could actually blur that line and make us think that we had any hope of replacing him. This came home to me recently as I took Josiah on a, a kind of field trip to uh, uh, Perkins Observatory in northern Columbus, where you get outside kind of in the woods a little bit, and it's pretty dark, and there's an actual observatory with a big telescope looking up at the stars, and it came home to me as we were standing there listening to the guide who was explaining all about the telescope and how it worked, and we were going to be looking at Saturn, and then he made this statement. He said, when you see Saturn through the telescope, 
the light coming from Saturn is traveling at the speed of light. That's 186,000 miles per second. And what that means, because Saturn is so far away, that what you see is actually the light an hour and a half after it has left. That's how long it takes for that light at that speed to reach us. And when he said that, that got me thinking, and it, it really captivated me, even to this moment, of the difference between us and God. Do you know what that means, that, that we've been waiting on that light to reach us? In fact, that's what's happening all the time. It takes some measure, though it seems very small to us, or, or no time at all for light to actually reach our eyes, or sound to actually reach our ears, 761 miles per hour, the speed of sound. As soon as it happens, it takes time for it to reach our ears. Or even the feeling of touch in the sense that when someone touches you or you're pricked with a needle, it takes some measure of time for that signal to reach your brain and register. It means that as creatures, you and I have never experienced a truly present moment. You have never experienced the present moment. You have always experienced the delay. Could there be any greater distance between us and God than in that way? The God who lives in the eternal present. The God who has, who has no history. He has no future. He always is. And yet for us as creatures who have never experienced a present moment, could look at the God who is in the eternal present and think that we are like him, that we could be anything like him, that we could rise up to his level. We fail to see this creator-creature distinction. Listen to what God says to the wicked in Psalm 50. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. This is what the allure of the unbelieving world does. It blurs the line between God and us. It erases the distinction and convinces us that we too, we too could be God. This is what we have been delivered from. We've been delivered from this absurd idea that we could be autonomous, that we could live in a kind of eternal present, which we feel like we are, and we have been delivered to the God who actually is the God who is there, and the God who is full of grace and mercy for us. The first way that we should take this text and work it into our lives is to beware. Remember, these are deceptions. It's easy to be overcome by the deception and lose sight of the reality that the world is alluring in its unbelief. This is what Babylonianism is at its heart. It is an allure, an attraction away from the living God with the promise that without him, we could be something. We could be really something. But see how else this personification of ultimate unbelief is pictured next, jumping down to verse six, as we see that Babylon, this, this personified unbelief, is at war with God and with his people. And in fact, Babylon is drunk on martyr blood. That is literally what this verse says in verse six. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Again, personified as this woman, Babylon, the ultimate unbelief of the world. 
is not passive but active, actively pursuing those who belong to the true God as if she could snuff them out. She is drunk on blood. Throughout Scripture, drunk, as we know, can have two can mean that, that it's a loss of, of senses, to be kind of lost in the euphoria of drunkenness. It also is often referred to as a kind of happiness and delight. So put those together and think about what does it mean for the unbelieving world to be drunk on the blood of the saints and the witnesses of Jesus. She has become, as the cliche goes, fat as a tick sucking up the blood of the martyrs of the people of God. This is serious fighting language. This is war language about the unbelieving world being at war with God's world and God's people. Fat as a tick, celebrating, delighting, happy. Or have you ever been on on maybe a vacation or trip like, like I've been on where, where there's lots of things to see and lots of different excursions to take. But what I'm really interested in is I'm really interested in the food. I know of all the places that I want to go and I will go one after another after another to enjoy all of those good gifts that God has given. And when it's done, I sit back happy as can be and full and delighting in the afterglow of all of the enjoyment Now, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But think about this woman. Think about the unbelieving world. What does the unbelieving world sit back and rejoice in? The death of God's saints. The death of his witnesses. The snuffing out of the voice that says, you're not autonomous. You're not independent. You're not like God. You are not him. Come to him because he's better than you ever knew him to be. And that voice is snuffed out over and over again in the world by this overwhelming unbelief, this ultimate unbelief. But I want to ask you, what do you think when you read these words? I saw the woman drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. What do you think? I'm going to tell you what you should think. You should think, there I am. I'm written down in the text because I am one of those saints. I am one of those witnesses. Who are these people? It's easy for them to be faceless and meaningless. Who are these people? These people are our family. These are our brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. These are the people of God and therefore we should take this verse infinitely seriously. We should take this caution and this warning about the unbelief of the world and how it delights in snuffing out the people of God that we would fight the good fight. Not so that we would be so concerned about preserving our lives because this passage is not about the preserving of life, physical life. It's about the preserving of spiritual life. That's the kind of snuffing out. That's the kind of blood. It's spiritual blood. Of course, it does work out in different eras of history and even in the future in the actual shedding of blood. But what's the ultimate concern? The ultimate concern is to fight the good fight of faith. Hear these words that Paul spoke to Timothy, his spiritual son, in 1 Timothy 6. This is a little different translation and wording from the, from the, the New Living Translation. It puts it this way, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run 
from all these evil things. Do you hear that refrain over and over again in Scripture? Run from these evil things. Stay away from them. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight for the true faith. What a reminder to us. The Christian life is a fight. Are you fighting? Am I fighting? Is that the way your spiritual heart and life is characterized as it's in a fight? It is fighting a battle, yes, that's already been won, just as we sang this morning, but nevertheless, there is an ongoing fight. And it's not because the world is outside of us, is it? Why are we fighting? Because for now, the world is still inside of us. That we all still have remaining sin. We all still have remaining unbelief. That's why you feel these temptations. That's why it is so alluring. It's playing upon our natural desires that remain until the final day when Seth is, uh, Seth, Seth is not going to be done. When sin is done. And ultimately, we are made right before God in full righteousness then, our full redemption He goes on and says, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. These warnings about unbelief in the world are serious. Hold tight to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. There they are again, these witnesses. The second way that we should apply this text to our hearts then is to do that very thing. Hold tight to the truth. Why? It's not because the truth is slippery. It's not because the truth can get away from you. It's because unbelief is slippery. The unbelief of our hearts is alluring and deceiving, and therefore we need to fight. And we fight with ultimate resources and weapons in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fight with things like the Lord's Supper. We fight with things like the the remembrance of our baptism, Not because they do anything to save us, they don't, but they are pictures that remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us and how we have been united with him and we'll be with him forever. They are means of grace to us. That's how we fight. Why should we on Saturday night prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper and to receive this means of grace so that it would fuel us and encourage us and give us hope? Why should we be diligent on Saturday night to prepare our hearts to hear the word of God proclaimed to us albeit in weakness and in stumbling. Why should we do that? Why should we prepare our hearts so that we would come and sing truly from our hearts, not with the rest of the day on our minds as I'm often guilty or the fears and worries of the past, I'm often guilty because we're in a fight. And these are our tools of fighting. These are the ways that we remain strong and because we know that unbelief is slippery. Finally, the last truth to see this morning is that Babylon, this ultimate unbelief, is characterized by deep betrayal. Look at verse 5 as we prepare our hearts finally to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. How does this ultimate unbelief, the ultimate question, interact with God? We've seen the way that ultimate unbelief interacts with our hearts and alluring us, the way that ultimate unbelief uh, uh, interacts with the people of God in the world by seeking to snuff out faith if possible. 
and perhaps even in certain times actually to shed blood and put an end to the voices that are crying out about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how does ultimate unbelief interact with God? It does so in great treason and betrayal. We've already seen the creator-creature distinction that he is high and exalted. He is the king of the universe. There is no one like him. He's the one who deserves all glory, all worship, all admiration. He is the one who in truth allures us. He is the one who satisfies us. He is the one who draws us into himself so that we may know him and belong to him. He is the one who wishes to be our ultimate gladness. And yet ultimate unbelief will not have it. And that makes ultimate unbelief the ultimate betrayal. This is characterized as well in the picture that we have of Babylon the Great, this personified unbelief. In verse 5, on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great. Now some graphic language here. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. This graphic language is captured in two words, prostitutes and abominations. Actually, the original word that's used for prostitutes is a word that's familiar to us in our current culture, and it's the word porne. It's the idea of being defiled for gain. She is the mother of giving our hearts to defilement so that we can gain the joy or gladness of being defiled. This is ultimate betrayal. To look at the God of all gladness, who is all satisfying to his creatures whom he made, and to say no to him, I prefer porne. I prefer the immorality of the world. I prefer the promises of unbelief. I prefer all that the world would offer to me if I will fall in with them because that's what will satisfy my heart. Ultimate betrayal. It gets even worse because not only is, is that porne preferred over the God of the universe who is all satisfying, but abominations are preferred over his blessings. Abominations. This is the way that the Bible characterizes this way of thinking and living. It's a word that means a foul stench of idolatry. A foul stench of idolatry. We all know the smell of a skunk, especially around here. They're everywhere. They're under the shed. They're in the sewer. And at certain times of the year when they're particularly active, it's almost as if not a night goes by that you don't get out of the car and you wonder how close is it. It is that stench that is overwhelming. It's not just overwhelming to your nostrils. It's overwhelming and, and encircling you. It's almost as though it seeps into your clothing and you go inside and you smell like you do from a campfire and you smell just skunk. This is what the unbelieving world is about. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the stench of idolatry of the whole earth. This is another serious warning. Notice the presumptuous name, great. To say that she is great is, is, is a ridiculous statement. 
It is a statement of what the allure is, though, because we read earlier in the text about all of the the beauties and luxuries and the appearance of greatness. But in reality, she is not great. And she certainly is not great when contrasted with what is coming at the end of the book of Revelation, this great city of ultimate belief, the great city of ultimate redemption, the city of Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. This is the contrast. The Bible is trying to to help us see how utterly ridiculous it is to follow after the world. How silly it is to think for a moment that the world is great or that the world in its unbelief and autonomy has anything to offer that could even remotely compare to what God has prepared for his people. But this is Babylonianism, the world's alluring false promises of gain apart from Christ. It is a facade. It is a deception. And knowing this not only helps us in the world today so that we may avoid the allures and the deceptions, which we want to do, we must do, but also because we can see more clearly what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has rescued us from this kind of world and he has made us his kind of people and he's doing it more and more and more. Therefore, the, fast, the last way for us to apply this to our hearts is that we would, instead of doing what we see in this text, which is celebrating the world of unbelief, that instead we would celebrate and center our lives around the great Lord, the true Lord of all the earth, of heaven and earth. That we would celebrate. I hope that you're celebrating. I know that it's hard in a fallen world. There's lots going against us, but this is a discipline. This is a a fight to celebrate. It's a fight for joy in this world, but the joy is ours to have. The celebration has been given to us in Christ And therefore, I want to encourage all of us, myself included, to even more this week and in coming days, even more center our lives around Jesus Christ and his great promises, his grace and his mercy. The world is alluring. The world is deceiving. The world is thirsty for blood. But we belong to Jesus Christ who doesn't drink up the blood, but sheds his blood. And he did that for us, which we celebrate this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. I want to invite those who are prepared as deacons to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as they do, I'm going to pray. uh, And then we will celebrate all together, taking the bread and the fruit of the vine and celebrating together what Jesus Christ has done for us. So I invite the deacons to come forward now to take up these elements as I pray. Please settle your heart and uh, close your eyes that you may focus on the Lord as we pray and ask him to use this means of grace in our hearts. Father, we, we pray now as these elements are going around that you would prepare our hearts, that you would, that you would give us attention and focus upon you and upon your good news 
God, we, we know that the world around us is uh, full of deceptions and alluring promises. We know this so well because we hear them speaking in our own hearts. We know the temptations that come from within us. And we need every day to be delivered by your grace. So we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, you would give us a renewed sense of the, the awe of what you have done and a renewed sense of the joy that there is to be ours in it because you are the satisfying God of the universe. You are the one that cares for us. And so we pray that you would make us in the best of all possible ways real fighters for the faith. That we would fight against sin, that we would fight against our own unbelief, that we'd hear the warnings of your word and the promises of joy in you and pursue them. We want to know you, and so we pray that you would minister to us. We pray that you, in your grace, would serve us now another dose of your mercy, and that by your Spirit, our hearts would be further changed, emboldened, comforted, cared for. And we pray for anyone who may be here this morning who is not a Christian. We pray that they would not take the Lord's Supper, but that they would consider the claims you have made in Scripture, the claims you have made upon yourself of who you are and what you offer to sinners like us, that they too would come and then, and then they would celebrate this, this wonderful supper with us and with you. We pray now as the elements go around that you would prepare our hearts, that you would focus our minds and help us to make this meaningful before you because we love you. We want to know you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.